This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mintz. Bail is refused. You're out of order! If it pleases the court. To adopt this affirmation, please say the words, I do. I do. Nothing further from this court. Given the serious nature of this offence, this case is dismissed. Welcome to The Wigs. I'm your host, Jim Minns. Today, The Wigs look at an important threshold question in the criminal justice system. What is the test or legal requirement for bringing a prosecution? The issue has been highlighted recently in the ongoing ACT inquiry into the criminal justice system. Some of the cases and materials referred to in this episode will be posted on The Wigs' Facebook and Twitter profiles. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Wigs. Lovely to have you in our company for another podcast episode. That's what we do, right? Weekly? Yes. Thank Weekly-ish. you. Weekly-ish. Weekly-ish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Put a caveat on that one. Uh, it's lovely to be here in your uh, podcast provider. Uh, my name is uh, James Minns, and I'm the host of the show, and I'm joined by Stephen Lawrence, member of the Legislative Council. It's great to be here, James. <laughs> it's lovely to have you here, It's Stephen. my brother's name. It's a lovely name. It is a good name. Grandfather, you know, long history of James is in my lineage. Yeah, what does it mean? I've just never, never heard you called it, but. Yeah, it's it's there. It's on the birth certificate. Don't know what it means. I don't know. James, uh, it's a biblical name, isn't it? It's Jacob in Jacob, the Bible. Yeah. yeah, there was an apostle James, wasn't it? Yeah, Jacob. Because yeah. I know in some European countries they don't know what the hell you're talking about. James was the one that Jesus was rather fond of. I think, isn't it? That rings probably rings mm. true. Probably does ring true. Felicity Graham. James Mintz. <laughs> How are you? I'm very well. Uh, Good. Just great to be in the studio with you guys. I love the studio. It just makes a difference. I've been pushing for these Riversides, these Zoom-style episodes. You keep pushing back, and I think with good reason. There's something to it, something electric about it. Oh, I feel the electricity. Me too. Emmanuel Kirkusharian. I am also buzzing, James. Yes. yes. I like that. I nice like to that. See you, mate. Nice to see you. I like the. Uh, I like that you're buzzing. Yeah. You well. I'm very well. Are you ready for this app? Can't control myself. Is everybody ready? Just ready. a slight correction. It was actually John who Jesus loved the most. Oh yeah, right, yeah, not right, James. right. Sorry. Or if you read the Da Vinci Code, it was Mary. But, mm. Yeah, that's discredited though. Who are we going to do? We're going to go back in time twenty years, <laughs> or are we going to talk about the present? We've got a topic that we need years. to cover. Isn't that more like two thousand? Oh, sorry, like the I don't know the about. book. The book, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who knows? So I was going way back, but you digress, indeed. <laughs> Who is? What are we even, Mister Lawrence? Yes. How are we going with today's topic? Yeah, well, yeah. Let's so hear it. I'm starting. Please. I didn't think I was starting, but I'm starting. No, you were on notice. So we thought we'd talk about. <laughs> A legal issue that in some ways is a little bit esoteric, but is actually very important. It's something that has received a bit of focus in the ongoing ACT inquiry into the criminal justice system, yep. which is the inquiry looking into the Lamb and uh, Higgins trial and all of the associated issues. Yes. So the issue that's arisen in the inquiry is that which relates to the police decision to charge. Mm. And as people who've been watching the inquiry, not that that includes many lawyers, I don't think anyone's found it all that interesting. I didn't even know about it until this very topic. I was actually oh, being really sarcastic <laughs> because I think most criminal lawyers are watching it. I think yeah. most people have at least two screens up. <laughs> One is on 
the inquiry. Yeah, someone described it as better than a Netflix series. It yeah, is better than me. a Netflix series. Yeah, yeah well, there yeah. you go. You're someone, <laughs> someone, someone, someone indeed. Uh, <laughs> and I've been taking interest in it because I used to be a prosecutor in the ACT. Yes. And I know a large range of the people involved. But anyway, I digress. So the issue that has sort of come to prominence in the inquiry is what is the legal test for a police officer to charge a suspect? Mm. That's obviously been of heightened importance in the case being examined in the ACT because there was a fundamental dispute uh, between the DPP and the AFP as to whether Lehrman should be charged. Okay. So the issue of what was the applicable test, whether the facts or the evidence supported that test, was an issue of contention between the police and the DPP. And that uh, tension or friction is what ultimately primarily led to the inquiry being called. So the inquiry, unsurprisingly, has been traversing over the brief of evidence that was prepared by the police, the interactions between the police and the DPP, Mm. and that's involved examination of a contest around what was the appropriate test. Now, it's pretty well established in statute law, I think in all Australian jurisdictions, that the test to arrest a suspect is reasonable suspicion that the suspect has committed an offence. And there's generally a statutory provision in whatever act, in whatever jurisdiction, that creates police powers that allows for arrest upon reasonable suspicion. And there's plenty of case law about that. When it comes, however, to the power to lay a charge, to file a charge with a court, to start a court proceeding, The statutory provisions seem to be a little bit less express in terms of what is the applicable test. So I might just read quickly what is the applicable provision in New South Wales. So turning then to the Criminal Procedure Act New South Wales, where it's provided that a court attendant's notice, which is a charge, may be issued in respect of a person if the person has committed or is suspected of having committed an offence. So that's stated in very broad terms, almost as if to suggest that it's some kind of pure discretion. Yeah. That's pretty similar to the Magistrates Court Act of the ACT, which provides in its counterpart provision, quote, an information may be laid before a magistrate in any case where a person has committed or is suspected of having committed in the ACT an indictable offence or an offence that may be dealt with summarily, etc. So that's the sort of broader context of consideration of this issue, which is that there's a very express provision that provides for arrest powers and sets out what test has to be satisfied but then a very openly worded discretion as to the actual laying of a charge. Now, in lots of cases, any distinction in terms of the test required for those two actions is not that material because in your run-of-the-mill case, you have reasonable suspicion to arrest. You also have a prima facie case, an obvious case, a strong case, a clear case. So whatever particular legal test is going to be applied to those facts, it doesn't really come to the fore because police just lay a charge and it's quite clear that there's a case to be tried there. Let the lawyers handle it. Yeah, but when one turns to the actual letter of the law in respect of what the test is to charge, you see that there is actually a quite distinct uh, test 
quite distinct from the arrest power that has to be applied. And I'll just read a little bit from a case of a recent High Court case, uh, New South Wales and Robinson, 2019 HCA 46, which if my memory doesn't fail me, I think we talked about maybe last season or the season before in the context of arrest for questioning. Mm. Yeah, but it's also got this other relevance, which is right at the back in uh, paragraph 115, it says this, reasonable suspicion requires an arresting constable to have reasonable grounds for suspicion of guilt. This is less than reasonable and probable cause for prosecution. Reasonable and probable cause for prosecution. The former is the necessary intention at the time of arrest. The latter is the necessary intention when making a decision to prefer a charge and and then preferring it. Uh, Contrary to the submissions of the state, the requirement of an intention to charge at the time of arrest does not import to the time of arrest a requirement to have the mental state required at the time of charging. All that it means is that there is an intention to meet the requirements for charging at the time of charging which is to take place as soon as is practicable after the arrest. Sorry, at the time of arresting, you mean? No, at the time of charging. No, no, as in an intention to have... No, no. so it says all that it means is that there is an intention to meet the requirement... There is is an intention, I interpolate, at the time at of the arrest. At the time of arrest, yeah. To meet the requirements mm-hmm. for charging at the time of charging. Sure. Which is to take place as soon as is practicable after the arrest unless it emerges after the arrest that there is not a sufficient basis to bring a charge. In that circumstance, the arrest should be discontinued. So this test of reasonable and probable cause is the test for preferring a charge in Australia. And I think I'm correct in saying that's definitely the case in the ACT and New South Wales, and I think think elsewhere, in, in the absence of some statutory provision uh, that might provide to the contrary. In most cases, though, don't you think that the state of mind that a police officer will necessarily have to form at the point of arrest in order to relevantly have that intention to have the required state of mind at the time of charging, which often happens you know, within minutes, if not hours, of that original arrest, is a reasonable and probable cause state of mind? Yeah, generally it's going to subsume, subsume reasonable both, suspicion. I would have thought. Mm. Like you will have a reasonable suspicion and the thing that gives you a reasonable suspicion will also give you reasonable probable cause. Yeah. And then you'll go and lay a charge and you'll never probably turn your mind to the difference because it just doesn't arise. And, you know, I think that that excerpt from Robinson really demonstrates the artificiality of some of these states of mind. So, for example, a police officer who arrests has to have a reasonable suspicion they also have to have an intention to have reasonable and probable cause at the time of charging, but they don't actually have to have reasonable and probable cause at the time of the arrest. That's gymnastics mm. on a mental level that I think is going to be on is going to be beyond most people. I think, mm. it, I think it takes into account the fact that as a police officer, you might want to give the person you're arresting the chance to tell you a story, yep. tell, tell you their story before you charge them. Yeah, except that I think that more commonly what the situation is is that the police are arresting 
not for the purpose of bringing proceedings, which is the only legitimate purpose, but for the purpose of investigating. In other words, they want to ask the person questions because they think that they did do it and they want to try and get more inculpatory evidence by way of admissions by but putting them in the interview room and asking them questions. Yes. I, it's not common in my practice. Usually when people are arrested, they're invariably charged. I don't know... Surely there has to have been some cases where I've had clients who are arrested and they're not charged. But generally speaking, if they arrest, they charge. I don't think that the fact of a charge means that the arrest wasn't for the purpose of investigation. Oh, I see. That's true. Yeah, so so they might have proceeded by court attendance That's notice, right. but they sure. decided to charge. Sorry, they decided to arrest in, in order, order to, to question, do, in no, order definitely. To question. Yeah, yes. that happens for sure. No, yeah, that, that's sure. very common. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I've cross-examined lots of cops, both in criminal and civil trials, on that issue. And you know, that's and I think we talked about this in our discussion of Robinson, but that's this impossible kind of overlay that the legislature has put on police, which is if you arrest, you will then have a four-hour. I think it's now been extended to six in some circumstances. You'll have an investigation period in which you can question, but you can't arrest for questioning. Yeah, I mean that's to create a temptation that is almost irresistible. I would have thought, as well as a confusion of concepts that mm. is going to make it very difficult to really work out what intention you need to have, mm. and to overlay that with. You've got to have an intention to have a certain intention down the track, but you don't have to have that intention at the time you arrest. I mean, that's crazily complicated. Mm. Mm. Anyway, as I said at the beginning, it's sort of esoteric in the sense that I think this distinction between reasonable suspicion to exercise the arrest power and reasonable and probable cause to charge doesn't often come up because whatever the police officer knows, it's a state of mind that subsumes both. Mm. So it doesn't often come up, but it Mm. does come up in the context of malicious prosecution cases because proving an absence of that basis to charge is a key element of that tort of malicious prosecution. Mm, I think it's worthwhile going to some of the case examples in malicious prosecution to tease out this issue. So there's a case of Zrika, State of New South Wales and Zrika. Mm. Um, so in that case, the plaintiff succeeded in a number of torts, assault, uh, a false imprisonment claim and a malicious um, prosecution claim. And what so, year? Uh, that was sorry, putting on the 2012. Spot. Yeah, we yep. did that one. Yeah, that came up in tort. That's yeah. got a chase by the police. So this is a case that was a shooting at a home in Parramatta, mm. and then shortly after that incident, the plaintiff was at a nearby service station, reported to have made some kind of strange comments. So the police investigating the shooting, when they found out about that, thought, oh, here's our guy. Mm. And then Mm. five days later, arrested him, charged him. But the investigation had revealed that the description of the shooter, the description of the shooter's vehicle, couldn't have matched the plaintiff. And um, then after the arrest, the plaintiff also... um, there was information that the police had that the plaintiff had a credible alibi, a witness had taken part in a photo array, not picked the plaintiff. So there was this kind of growing body of material saying mm. this is not the guy. Yeah. And anyway, despite all that, he was 
charged, refused bail. They kept the proceedings on foot for two months and then eventually the DPP withdraw the charges. So he's so, in custody that entire time? Yep. Yep. So he succeeded against the state on that. And there's a more recent case of spedding, which um, is a 2022 case. It arises out of the William Tyrrell investigation. Mm. Um, so in that case, the plaintiff sued for damages for malicious prosecution and some other um, other torts. In that case, the trial judge, Justice Harrison, mm. said the plaintiff's arrest mm-hmm. on discredited historical allegations of sexual abuse was mm. not based on any reasonable or probable cause. This is about six um, months to a year old. A few years now, spending, wasn't it? 2022. 2022, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, so he'd become a That's suspect. That's a thing, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Yep. yep. I remember this. And that was because he'd visited the home where William had last been seen. Mm. Um, but his alibi, um, the court said, had been unreasonably and inexplicably ignored by mm. investigators. Um, yeah. So... Mm. It's interesting, I think, to look at not only not only the civil cases, but mm. also think about cases that come up in criminal practice. Was and I think it's a pretty underlitigated area as well. Uh-huh. Like I think that civilly, I mean, there's people are scared, people are intimidated not to. A lot of settlements that happen too. Mm. Well, there you Lots go. Well, that certainly happens, but I think also there's just a lot of cases that aren't litigated. That's true too. With spedding, was that? Um, old mate who's now like a podcast king who's not on the force anymore? Yes. So it's interesting to note what reasonable and probable cause is, right, in the sense that it has both a subjective and an objective kind of aspect to it, particularly in the case of malicious prosecution cases like A. I think A and the state of New South Wales is still the leading case yeah. on malicious prosecution, 2007 230 CLR 500. Yeah. If you can show that the police officer who charged, say, did not subjectively believe the prosecution was warranted, mm, that's then enough. that's enough. That's you don't enough. even have to get to the objective mm-hmm. or vice versa if you can show it was objectively. So, I mean, in the context of this inquiry that's been going on, there's been all these things about, you know, the director directing the police officers to charge or things like should the cops consider the... Um, whether or not they think that the witness is credible. Mm. They have to consider, don't they? This is quite interesting in the context of a malicious prosecution, isn't it? Because the proceedings have been terminated in the accused's favour because the Crown filed a nolly. Yeah. Well, I mean, leaving aside the instant case, it just seems to me that a police officer is bound to consider in every case their own view of the credibility of the witnesses. Mm. Um, insofar as that arises, I mean, it might not arise. But if there's evidence that suggests the credibility is in doubt, it's not sufficient to leave that issue to the jury. If the prosecutor themselves is not satisfied to the point that they think that the prosecution might not be warranted, as was the case in A, mm. where the, I think the cop had been directed by his bosses to charge, um, then it's malicious. That's interesting. Mm, so A was that case where there was there were sexual assault complaints or sexual offences complaints by two stepsons and 
the plaintiff got up in respect of the proceedings for the younger boy where it was it seemed apparent that the young boy was making up a story to try to support the older brother. Mm-hmm. And so... Which he admitted to in the course of the proceedings, I think, that he'd made it up. Yeah, mm. so I think there was reasonable and probable cause for one case but not the other, which is, I think, another important thing to remember because in respect of this analysis... The state of mind has to apply to every single charge. Mm. It's not kind of a global, this person is suspicious and this person has, you know, done something wrong on a reasonable assessment of the circumstances. It's got to be in respect of each charge. And if you succeed in respect of any of the charges, then there might be a malicious prosecution case in respect of that. So it's essentially a hybrid test, isn't it? Like there has to be objectively viewed enough evidence to reasonably induce a state of mind or probability of guilt yep. in a reasonable person. Is that is that the essence of it? Yeah. Yeah. And there has to be the subjective belief in fact. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So if you don't believe it, then you can't charge. Yeah. And what's the status of this ongoing, you know, Inquiry. Yeah, so to look at all of this in the context of the ACT inquiry is interesting. So I've got here the transcript of the inquiry from Clap because it doesn't have it on the page. From the eleventh of May, which is the portion of the inquiry where Shane Drumgold, the DPP, was under examination from uh, his counsel. And he was asked by Tedeschi, his counsel, this question. This is on page 328 of that transcript, which is online on the inquiry website. Now, you've given a lot of evidence about the standard of proof required for police to charge, namely a reasonable suspicion. And you have explained that in your statement in your, and in your answer to questions by counsel assisting answer from Mr Drumgold, yes. And then he's asked this by Tedeschi. You've had an opportunity to look at a number of statements that have been made by current ACT police officers about that issue, about what they think is the standard of proof of charging by police. Answer, yes. And then he was asked, what do you say about what they've got in their statements about what they believe to be the standard of proof required for police to charge? And then Mr Drumgold says, well, I'm concerned because there appeared to be as many different tests as there are people purporting to apply the tests. Some of the senior officers suggest that a unified test has to be adopted and disseminated, and some of the more, the less senior officers don't appear to have embraced that test. There's terms in there that are unfamiliar to Australian law. Then he's asked, like what? Then Mr Drumgold says, like probable cause. So, one of, a couple of them have enunciated some words that include probable cause, which is a term that one might see on a US police show because it comes from a constitutional amendment. For those words, probable cause are not known to me, at least in Australian law. So it seems to me that there's a lot of words getting around, applied in different formats, but there is still, it's still very unclear what the actual test is being applied even today, at least as of those statements that I've looked at. And then he's asked by his counsel, has Deputy Chief Police Officer Chu expressed the view that the test is a reasonable possibility of obtaining a conviction? 
Uh, Mr. Drumgold, yes. And then he's asked, what do you say about that articulation of the test? Well, it grammatically, it's very difficult to grapple with. So reasonable is objective. Our possibility is, I'm assuming, something short of probability. So there's an objective, something less than 50%, but the target point is getting a conviction. Logically, it just doesn't seem to fit together. And then it sort of proceeds over the page in a similar vein. And then he's asked by Mr. Tedeschi over the page, now, the reasonable suspicion test that you have referred to, is that a test that's applied in other states and territories of Australia for police to charge? Mr. Drumgold, yes. So I've heard the term probable cause in US TV shows, so correct. I haven't practised law criminally in New South Wales. Is probable cause a term that's used? Yeah, I mean, yeah, as I've been talking about it. Reasonable probable cause. But we're off air when we talked about it, though. No, no, just now. Oh, were we? Oh, yeah, reasonable probable cause. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. That's uh, the test. Uh, gotcha, gotcha. That is the test. test. Sorry, I'm awake. He's awake. <laughs> <laughs> I just woke up then. Have you got a newborn by any chance? No. Did you have any sleep last night? That's my excuse. That's my excuse. So look, you know, it's not the only issue that you could probably take issue with things that Mr Drumgold has said in that inquiry, but I have a little bit of sympathy for him in the sense that there is an esoteric aspect to this because very often the difference between these tests is not that material and it doesn't really arise because, you know, whatever factual circumstance gives the police reasonable suspicion normally would give them reasonable probable cause. No one really quibbles about it. The proceeding just goes ahead. But, I mean, it, it's interesting, I guess, to think about the fact that uh, the DPP doesn't know what the test is in circumstances where the evidence goes on to show that his office is in a ongoing arrangement with the police to advise as to where the charges should be laid. Are they regularly review briefs of evidence that are sent to them where they have to tell the police whether the police should exercise that power? Did Tedeschi go, oh, um... No, no, he was leading him in this... Isn't he representing him? He's his counsel. So didn't he advise him to go... Yeah, look, yeah. I don't think Tedeschi was on top of the distinction, to be Looks honest. Looks as though he's led him into the area. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, I mean, Shane mustn't have known himself, right? No, so it's a but he's of the led minds, it. He's not trying to no. disavow him of it. or Absolutely not. It doesn't seem so. Have you thought about this or have you looked at this case? Mm. So it is so not a moment with my client, Your Honour? I mean, Tedeschi's a very experienced crime prosecutor too, which yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, some very big matters. Uh, but... I mean, I just went and checked to see whether the DPP has to be a lawyer in the ACT, and it turns out they do. They do. Yeah. Yep. Um, of at least five years' experience. Mm-hmm. That, I'm gobsmacked uh, by that. Like, That's unreal. There's a couple of things that were said there that were quite concerning, including that the director's view, in this is in the course of the inquiry, was that there was no distinction between putting a proposition and asking about something, mm. which I found just mind-boggling but this is sounds self-serving that's what that sounds like well this is just i mean this is the person who's making decisions in relation is the ultimate decision making in relation to every prosecution in the ICT and that's really important as well because the test for state of mind as at an arrest that crystallizes at the point in time of the arrest that's a bright line the arrest was at this time was there the requisite state of mind at that time in the arresting officer. But the test for charging and then maintaining proceedings against a person is an ongoing test. 
and the factual scenario on the ground which influences a relevant person's state of mind can change, often does change over time as the investigation continues during the course of the proceedings being on foot. And so when we think about the test for charging and maintaining proceedings of reasonable and probable cause, that's something that is really critical to the role of a director because if they learn of facts after the institution of proceedings which show that the prosecution is baseless or lacks reasonable and probable cause, then they may be liable for malicious prosecution themselves for continuing the proceedings in those circumstances. So I think in that context, it's worth talking about the DPP policy. I think right? that's right because that's mm. another test that overlays... It does, and it's interesting to think about the difference. And has also, uh, you know, other public interest factors that Absolutely. come in. But it's interesting to look first, and I'll just bring it up, to look at the prosecution policy insofar as it states a standard of proof, if you want to use that language, which is And is probably this in the ACT or New South Wales that you're looking at? So I'm looking at the ACT one. Mm-hmm. So the ACT policy says... And... It's many pages long. Page 11? Yeah, but if you go to page two, to paragraph 2.4, the decision to prosecute can be understood as a two-stage process. First, does the evidence offer reasonable prospects of conviction? If so, is it in the public interest to proceed with the prosecution? That's the fundamental test, right? Reasonable prospects to, of conviction and then public interest. And just to compare that to the New South Wales guidelines, yep. which is very similar, but the test for deciding whether to prosecute, the decision to prosecute involves two questions. One, can it be said that there is no reasonable prospect of conviction? And I think this is an interesting add-on on the admissible evidence. Two, is the prosecution in the public interest? Yeah, and the ACT policy goes on to refer to questions of admissibility and so forth. What if you fail the first one, pass the second one in New South Wales? You probably can't, right, in the sense that if there's not reasonable prospects, it's not going to be in the public interest to proceed. But all of this presumes reasonable and probable cause. I think that's right. So that's the question, right? Is there a difference between reasonable and probable cause and reasonable prospects of conviction. I've been thinking this through. I think the answer is you can't have reasonable prospects of conviction unless you have reasonable and probable cause. Sure. It has to be. The fact that you have reasonable and probable cause might not mean that you have reasonable prospects of conviction. That's what I think. And it certainly doesn't answer the public interest question. It doesn't answer the public interest question at all. Because the evidence might be prima facie sufficient and you may actually believe the person is guilty, but you might form the view that the witnesses say are so hopeless that I can't get up. So in that circumstance, there's reasonable probable cause, but there's not reasonable prospects of conviction. Or you might form the view that the evidence as gathered by the police justifies reasonable and probable cause, but the evidence is tainted by being obtained in consequence of illegality by the yeah. police mm. and will inevitably or very likely be excluded and so then you wouldn't have reasonable prospects of conviction on the admissible evidence. Yeah. yeah. So what's interesting is there's no reference in the prosecution policy to reasonable probable cause. It's not in there, right? Mm. 
which apparently it's in the Commonwealth guidelines. I don't have them in front of me, but I was talking to someone who's expert in this area earlier today who said it's in the Commonwealth Mm. uh, guidelines. So just again, to show a little bit of sympathy uh, to Shane Drumgold, he's been operating and he's practiced essentially all his career at the ACT DPP. He's been applying this guideline and focusing his mind on the question of whether there's reasonable prospects and then the public interest question. Mate, he signed his name to this. Yeah, he did. He did not turn his mind to the underlying law underpinning well, each Well, that would appear to be the case. I mean, He's been focusing on reasonable prospects, not the question of reasonable and probable cause, which I think is unhelpful because the notion of reasonable and probable cause with its objective and subjective aspects and this notion of probability and this need to form a certain belief, it actually brings you to the pointy end of assessing credibility and kind of engaging with the facts of a case in a real way to decide if you should prosecute. Whereas this more nebulous overall catch-all concept of reasonable prospects, it's much more in the eye of the beholder, I think. But isn't he saying that he thought the test was reasonable suspicion, which, which is, is the even right. lower, the lowest baseline test Correct. for arrest? Mm. He, he was saying that he thinks that's the <coughs> test for charging. Well, yeah, and, despi- and I mean, it's interesting that he posits that as the test for prosecution, yet he deprecates so heavily this idea that Officer Chu had supposedly expressed, which was that it's that the test is a reasonable possibility of obtaining a conviction. And he deprecates that as grammatically and logically sort of incapable of being grappled with. What's the difference between reasonable suspicion and reasonable possibility? I don't really see in any logical sense a big difference there. Um, you know... We, I think many defence lawyers have often feared that what happens, despite having statutory office holders who are paid a lot of money and meant to turn their mind to these things, what really happens is that they don't turn their mind to these things and they just say, leave it to a jury. And this is just indicative, isn't it, of that kind of thinking. We're not even clear what the bloody test is. Doesn't matter, mate. It's woolly. It's just, it's just appalling, you know, and I'm not, uh, in many, I think a lot of defence and crim- and prosecution, prosecuting practitioners are glued to this inquiry because we're seeing a lot of things that we've long suspected to be the case playing out in reality. Mm. It'll be really interesting to see what Sofranoff does. Yeah. So to bring it sort of maybe to a conclusion, um, it's going to be interesting to see... Before you do, can yep. I say... If this alleged incident was to have occurred not in Parliament House but some random building like on the London circuit of Canberra, are we still in this situation? I think that's a really difficult question to answer and one that we should leave for a substantive discussion. But I'd just say this. It's difficult to separate that question from questions that go to her credibility because many of the issues that went to her credibility on any objective assessment were things that arose as a consequence of where it happened and what her job was and how she responded to the events in terms of going to the media and saying certain things and doing certain things. I think it's difficult to unpick it all. It's not just the location. There was a lot more to it than that, I think. But in terms of this discussion about reasonable and probable cause, it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out in the findings because at one point in the inquiry, it was put to the parties by the inquiry, is anyone here going to say that Drumgold didn't have a basis to commence a prosecution? That an indictment shouldn't have been presented. Yeah, that's right. Mm. Um, And no party or no affected party or affected person said that they would be putting that in issue, right? 
So Sofronov is not going to be having to determine whether on any of these tests there was a basis to prefer the charge or lay the indictment or maintain the prosecution. But I hope he doesn't, not to try to influence him, but I hope he doesn't miss the opportunity to delve into this question because Mm -hmm. it's another one of those issues that arises in this inquiry that arise in so many prosecutions, whether it's disclosure, whether it's questions of privilege, whether it's the foundational test, that they, these things come up all the time, but very, very rarely is there a multi-million dollar public inquiry into them. Yeah. So this can play out and have an effect on, a consequence on, I think, the way that many, many criminal prosecutions are run throughout Australia. Mm. And I think just to come back to Jim's question, I think partly this inquiry wouldn't exist except for the circumstances of the allegation relating to Parliament House and the kind of... The notoriety of the Exactly. Yeah. I mean, Shane Drumgold called for the inquiry primarily or firstly in that letter to the police. I don't know if he seriously expected that he was going to get it, but that's the most immediate cause of it. Never ask a question if you don't know the answer. (laughs) Or you don't want the answer. Except that rule doesn't apply so well when you think you know the answer, but you don't actually know the answer. To ensure we fairly present the issues we wanted to add a postscript, listeners can access Shane Drumgold's witness statement and evidence in full on the ACT Inquiry website, which is online. In short, Mr Drumgold says that Section 26 of the Magistrates Court Act creates a test of mere suspicion for police to file a criminal charge and that subsequent to that, the DPP applies a reasonable prospects of conviction test. He makes no mention in his statement of the reasonable and probable cause test. The Whigs note that an absence of reasonable and probable cause is part of the test for malicious prosecution in the ACT. See Andre Vaderescu versus the Commonwealth of Australia and the Australian Capital Territory 2012 ACT SC 96 brackets 15 June 2012. The Whigs' view is that Section 26 is to be read subject to the common law and that when invoked by a police officer, reasonable and probable cause is required to charge because charging begins the prosecution process. In any event, it seems baffling that the DPP himself is unaware of the threshold at which a prosecution in the ACT becomes malicious. Thanks for listening. Please like The Wigs on Facebook at The Wigs Podcast. Don't forget to rate and review on iTunes. This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions, produced by Jim Mintz. 